All right. Well, a number of people told me that they, because of this all-important next step meeting we have at the end of the second service, they would be attending the second service today. And looking around, apparently that's the case. At least I hope that's the case. So, but I'm glad you're here. I'm glad for that commitment that you've made, and I hope you'll come back after the second service as we talk about some important things coming up in the life of our church. As I was preparing the message, sometimes when I get involved in sermon preparation, I let my imagination kind of run wild. And I got to thinking, what would it have been like in Jesus' day, say 2,000 years ago, if they had had some of our technology and some of our business practices, say business culture? I think you might see a letter like this. This is a letter to Jesus, son of Joseph, Woodcrafter's Carpenter Shop, Nazareth, 25922. And it's from the Jordan Management Consultants. Dear Sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for managerial positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of test, and we have not only run the results through our computer, but also arrange personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. The profiles of all the tests are included. You'll want to study each of them very carefully. As part of our service, we make some general comments for your guidance, much as an auditor will include some general statements. This is given as a result of staff consultation and comes without any additional fee. It is a staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience and managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable, given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel it is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, definitely have radical leanings, and they both registered a high score on the Manic Depressive Scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, has contacts in high places. He's highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All of the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture Sincerely, Jordan Management Consultants. Well, we laugh at that, but I suspect if we were selecting 12 people to carry on our work after we're gone, we might do something like that. I, I've worked for an organ—I worked for an organization where we did things like that. We hired consultants. I've been on review panels where we reviewed candidates and made recommendations like that. And I suspect if we had reviewed these 12 men that Jesus picked, we would have probably come up with the same recommendations. So one principle stands out here, doesn't it? 
And that is that when it comes to equipping people for God's work, God's standards are a little different than the world's. These were not extraordinary men by, by our worldly qualifications. But I assure you they were not chosen by mistake. Isaiah 55 says that God's ways are higher than our ways. There comes a point where Jesus needed to appoint 12 men for a higher calling, for greater role. And they were, as I said, they were not chosen randomly by mistake. Luke 6, 12 and 13 says, One day soon afterward Jesus went up on a mountain to pray, and he prayed to God all night. At daybreak, he called together all of his disciples, and he chose 12 of them to be his apostles. Jesus chose these men after he got to know them and after spending an all-night prayer meeting with the Heavenly Father. The characteristic that these men needed to possess was simply that they needed to be able to share what they had seen and heard from three years with, with their master. They needed to be able to reproduce their lives in the lives of other, other believers. And that's what our verse is all about here in our 52 series. The ability to take what you have learned from godly people get this squared away here from, that you've learned from others that you've learned from your own study and to teach that and share that with other people. That's what we call discipleship. And that's what our verse is about this week. 2 Timothy 2.2. And it outlines four levels of equipping other people. Of teaching about the gospel message. I call it discipleship 101. So would you stand with me while we read this verse together? 2 Timothy 2.2. be reading from the New Living Translation. And we want to note these four levels. The verse says you, and that's Timothy. This is Paul writing to Timothy. You, Timothy, that's one level, have heard from me, Paul, another level. Teach things, and I put emphasis on the word teach. Teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now teach these truths to other trustworthy people. Third level who will be able to pass them on to others. Fourth level. Would you pray with me? Our Father, once again, we're reminded of the Great Commission that we, as followers of Jesus, are to go and make disciples, and we're to teach them the things that you taught your disciples. And so, Lord, we just ask for your blessing this morning as we look at Paul's writings concerning this all-important process and we just dedicate this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. And maybe to get this process started as we th in our thinking, let's do a little math example. Use your imagination again. Suppose that, let's just say that there's a preacher who has the gift of evangelism. He's a good, good evangelist. And so he devotes the early part of his career to that. He becomes an evangelistic speaker, and he travels all around. 
And to make, make math simple, let's just say that he averages leading one person a day to Jesus Christ. That's 365 people a year. Well, most of us will, you know, will never do that. But when you think about the evangelists that you've known, the Billy Grahams of the world, the Charles Spurgeons, the Dwight L. Moody's, they've, they've done far more than that. But let's say this is a real high burnout, uh, high energy kind of career, and he can only do this, all this traveling and speaking for about, oh, let's arbitrarily, let's say 15 years, and then he has to kind of do something else. Even so, the math is pretty impressive. In 15 years, if, if my multiplication is right, he's done over 5,400, he won over 5,400 people to the Lord. That's, that's a city the size of Aspen, Colorado. Wouldn't it be fantastic if everyone in Aspen, Colorado got saved in the next 15 years? But now let's say he decides after the first few months of his ministry, he takes a different approach. He only wins 12 people to the Lord. And then he stops his evangelistic services. And for the next three years, which is the approximate time Jesus spent with his 12, that he devotes all his energy into 12 men, to 12 people. He teaches them the scriptures. He teaches them everything he knows. He fellowships with them. He gets to know them. He's very much a part of their life. He's very deeply into sharing with them. At the end of three years, he has 12 very well-equipped disciples. So well-equipped that at the end of three years, they are capable of going out and each winning 12 and doing the same thing, repeating the process, teaching them, spending time with them. So that at the end of that three years, well, you see where this is going. They go out and win 12 and for three years repeat the process. Do you know how many disciples you have at the end of 15 years this way? You can punch it out on your calculator, but the math starts getting pretty impressive. It's about a quarter of a million, I think 248,000. If you run it out another three years to 18 years, it's over 3 million. Now, I know and you know nothing works out that cleanly in real life. Uh, that's just the way it is. But you get the idea. You get the principle. Discipleship is not an addition ministry. It's a multiplication ministry. That's the technique that Jesus used. Nobody understands this any better in modern times than Billy Graham. I heard him say one time that if churches were doing what they need to be doing in small group ministries, community groups, or whatever you want to call them, discipling other people, there would be no need for his evangelistic association. He would be very happy if we would force him out of a job. That's the discipleship uh, program. Now let's look at 2 Timothy 2.2 in detail a little bit, kind of get a grip on this, how this multiplication ministry works. And let's look at four of the principles that we see here. Not that there are only four, but we were talking about four levels. So let's look at four principles this morning that kind of explain this. And the first one, I simply say that the older teach the younger. And I don't necessarily mean chronologically older. Those older in the faith, those more mature, teach, teach the, uh, the, the new converts. And usually it works out chronologically as well, but not always. Paul says, you, Timothy, have been taught by me. 
Well, who was Timothy? He was a young co-worker of Paul's. And the tone of First and Second Timothy in your New Testament is that of a father in the faith, a mature individual in the faith, concerned about his young church leader. And in 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul wrote to him and says, Don't let anyone think less of you because you're young. Be an example to all believers in what you say, in the way you live, in your love, your faith, and your purity. He's talking about lifestyle there, and we're going to talk more about that in a minute. In Titus chapter 2, Paul says that older women are to teach younger women, to train them. In 1 Timothy Paul warns not to have a recent convert as an elder in the church. Pick mature people. And Paul uses the word teach when he talks about discipleship. You've heard me teach. And indeed, the word disciple in Greek means a pupil who is taught by a teacher, a learner, someone willing to learn. Discipleship is simply not possible without some teaching. And yet, teaching in Scripture is given to us with a warning that's a very, very awesome responsibility. James 3.1 says that not many of you should become teachers in the church, for we who teach will be judged more strictly. Remember that when you're ever placed in a teaching role, you're held to a higher standard. I think about James 3.1 every time I stand up here and realize the importance of rightly dividing the word of truth, of teaching sound doctrine. Pastors and elders in the church are held to this higher standard because they have teaching responsibility. And concerning teaching discipleship. Remember, God's ways are higher than our ways. Uh, What the world may use to judge as qualifications for a teacher of the word may not be what, what we would in our society. I mean, who would have ever thought that these 12 men, this group of 12 men, commercial fishermen, tax collectors, would become teachers of the word? Who would have ever thought that a An old forest ranger like myself would find himself in a teaching position in ministry. God's ways are different than our ways. He looks at things a little differently. Let me tell you a story from my own experience about Norman. Norman was my Sunday school teacher when I was about middle school age there in a small country church. We had a boys' Sunday school class, and we liked Norman our teacher. For some reason, Norman, uh, when we all graduated up to high school, Norman kind of graduated with us. He became our high school teacher. I don't know how that happened. but So Norman was an important part of, of my spiritual journey when I was a youth. Norman is not, was, would not be a teacher that you would have selected. The Jordan Management Consulting Firm would not have picked Norman. He, he was not an academic guy. He had trouble himself in high school. Norman worked for a construction company. He drove a bulldozer for a living. We guys thought that was kind of deep. But Norman had the ability to hook up life events, small events, 
with scriptural principles and, and share that with us. He spent a lot of time with us. He cared about us. Norman had a speedboat, and every year he would take us boys camping down at one of the big reservoirs. We learned how to water ski, and, and uh, we just really liked Norman. In those, Norman would study his lesson for the week. In those days, we used Sunday school quarterlies. I don't know if any of you can remember those, but he would look at the verses that we were going to be talking about on Sunday, and somehow or another, something would happen to him at work or at his home or that he could relate to those verses. And so we kind of looked forward to see what Norman, what story Norman would have for us on Sunday morning. Well, years went by, and I graduated from college and about to get married, and, and we're planning our wedding party. And I got to thinking about who I wanted in my wedding party. And I asked Norman if he would be in the group. And I know people wondered about that. I mean, my best man was was a lifelong friend from high school and college, and my groomsmen and others were cousins and people my age. And then there was Norman, who was twice our age. But Norman was so important in my getting my spiritual journey started, I wanted to honor him and ask him if he would be in my wedding, and, and he agreed. As I said, Norman was not a teacher that would have been selected by Jordan Management Services, but he was that important in my life. Teaching is listed as a spiritual gift in Ephesians 4 and Romans 12. And we know that gifts of the Spirit may or may not be related to our natural ability and talents. And so the second thing we want to look at here is your life as a teaching example. Paul says, you've heard me teach. You've been observing me. That's actually the first layer, Paul teaching Timothy. There's a saying in Christian circles that goes something like this. You've probably heard it. You need to share the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Well, actually, I don't like that saying too well. I get it. I understand what what they're trying to say. Your life, your lifestyle should demonstrate Christ-like character. I mean, we should be moving toward Christ-likeness. I understand that. But having said that, let me say that sooner or later, if you're going to share the gospel, you're going to have to use words. How shall they hear? They need to hear the word. And words become part of our lifestyle. It's very important, the words that we use. Matthew 12, 36. Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Disciple makers use words carefully. And that certainly reinforces James' warning to us, doesn't it? Judged by a higher standard. Paul, as a, as a teacher, is an interesting example. Kind of demonstrates some tension in the text. For example, in Romans 7, verse 18 and 19, Paul says this about himself. He says, And I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Well, that doesn't sound like a man who's setting himself up as an example, does it? And yet, in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Paul says, and you should imitate me. 
just as I imitate Christ. And so at first glance you say, well, which is it, Paul? But then you need to read that last part, just as I imitate Christ. We imitate others, our teachers, to the extent that they are imitating Jesus Christ. Your life as a disciple should be one of imitating Christ. And then we come to a verse in Luke 6, 40, that says, the student who is fully trained will, guess what? Become like his teacher. Scary thought, isn't it? We're judged by higher standards, so be careful. Third point this morning. We need to disciple trustworthy people. Third level. The Greek definition for trustworthy people, as used here, speaks of people who show themselves faithful in the transaction of business, the execution of commands, or the discharge of, the, of their duties. They are people who you can rely upon. Reliability, trustworthiness is the key. Do we have time to disciple everyone? No, of course not. It's important to realize that the requirements we should be looking for as we teach people are not um, eloquence, not intelligence, not charismatic, how charismatic they are, but how trustworthy they are. People who want to go deeper and you can rely on them and their faithfulness to do that. I have a lot of experience in discipling men's groups, various places throughout the country, and I learned that I learned to select the people for my groups. And interestingly enough, I learned not to always pick people in the church who were highly visible, who were up front. I found out that they sometimes were reluctant to really share deeper. They were maybe not so committed to, to really learning at that deeper level. I usually pick people who were kind of low profile, kind of behind the scenes, but who really wanted to get into the Word of God. I had more success with them. Can you always discern who's going to be trustworthy? Well, no, of course not. There's going to be some disappointments. Sometimes I think maybe that's why Jesus picked one man for his group who he knew would fail. Not everybody's going to get it. The confusing part in discipleship is that the word disciple is used rather loosely in the New Testament. Uh, it, it, refers, it was used to refer to people who had varying levels of commitment. Tyson talked about this last week. Matter of fact, he used this verse. Uh, in John chapter 6, there's an there's a incident where Jesus has a group of disciples around him. They're called disciples. And he lays some real heavy teaching on them. Things that are very difficult to comprehend and hard to follow. And when we come to verse 66... It says, at this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Well, that's where he turned to the twelve. He said, are you going to leave me too? And I said, no, we're with you for the long haul. We've made a commitment to follow you. And we see this in the church. There are varying levels of, of discipleship commitment. With the twelve, Jesus needed to call a few men to a deep level of commitment for a very special purpose to get the new Christian movement started, to carry on after he, after he left them. It's not the number of people you disciple, it's the faithfulness of those who listen and are obedient to the truths of Scripture. 
An elderly preacher was rebuked by one of his deacons one Sunday morning before the service. Pastor, said the man, something must be wrong with your preaching and your work. There's been only one person added to the church in a whole year, and he's just a boy. The minister listened, his eyes moistening, his thin hand trembling. I feel it all, he said, but God knows I've tried to do my duty. On that day, the minister's heart was very heavy as he stood before his flock. Later on, he even considered resigning. But that morning after everyone else had left, that one boy came up to him and said, Pastor, do you think if I worked hard for an education, I could become a preacher, perhaps even a missionary? Again, tears welled up in the minister's eyes. Ah, this heals some of the ache I feel, he said. Robert, I see the divine hand now. May God bless you, my boy. Yes, I think you could become a preacher or a missionary. Many years later, an aged missionary returned to London from Africa. His name was spoken with reverence. Nobles invited him to their homes. He had added many souls to the church of Jesus Christ, reaching even some of Africa's most savage chiefs. His name was Robert Moffat, the same Robert who years before had spoken to the pastor that Sunday morning in that old Scottish church. Final point. Who then teach others. There's a pattern I notice in the, in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus feels he has trained the twelve well enough that he can kind of send them out on their own on a little exercise. Do a little ministry without him around. Luke 9, 1 and 2 says, One day Jesus called together his twelve disciples and gave them the power and authority to cast out all demons and to heal all diseases. Then he sent them out to tell everyone about the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Hey, man, that must have been an experience for them. They're, they're out trying this out on their own. And, and, and Luke 9 indicates that it was a pretty exciting time for them. They got back and they couldn't wait to tell Jesus everything that they had seen and that, and that they had heard and that they had done. Then we come to Luke chapter 10, verse 1. It says, the Lord now chose 72 other people, other disciples, and sent them ahead in pairs to all the towns and places he planned to visit. So we started with 12, and now we're up to 72. And I've always wondered what the 12 were doing during this time. I like to think of them as graduate students, helping get these 72 ready to go out. Hey, we've been there. We've done this, you know. It must have been kind of fun for them. And the 72 came back the same, the same way. Now, I don't have time to illustrate this this morning from the Gospels, but if you were to uh, take, take a look at a harmony of the Gospels, lay all the four Gospels out side by side with a timeline, you'll see a pattern showing up here. If you look at the, the style of teaching Jesus did to the Twelve through Luke chapter 9, if you look at the type of miracles he did, the parables, the discussions he had, You'll notice a pattern, and you see after Luke 10, after we get talking about the 72, the pattern repeats itself. And then we come to Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2, after Jesus is getting ready to depart, or has departed, and it says there were 120 in the upper room. 
And guess what their leaders did? They went out two by two in pairs to teach about the kingdom of God. The pattern of multiplication ministry is there. For centuries, people have been trying to improve on Jesus' method of discipleship. Nobody's ever come up with a better method. Paul Powell, in his book, The Complete Disciple, described this condition. Now, you kind of need to understand a Bible Belt uh, culture here to, uh, to, to understand this, where churches had a Sunday morning worship service, Sunday night worship service, a Wednesday night service. And he writes this. He says, Many churches today remind me of a laboring crew trying to gather in a harvest while they sit in the tool shed. They go to the tool shed every Sunday, and they study bigger and better methods of agriculture sharpen their hoes, grease their tractors, and then they get up and go home. Then they come back that night, study bigger and better methods of agriculture, sharpen their hoes, grease their tractors, and go home again. Then they come back Wednesday night, and again study bigger and better methods of agriculture, sharpen their hoes, grease their tractors, and they get up and they go home. They do this week in and week out, year in and year out, and nobody ever goes out into the fields together in the harvest. At some point, you as a disciple must go out. In my church experience, I've observed, and research backs me up on this, that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. I think that applies to giving as well. About 80% of the income comes from 20% of, of the people. Well, why is that? Could it be that the 20% have failed to disciple properly the 80%? What a difference it would make if Christians not only sought to be a disciple, but, but became one who discipled others, teaching biblical principles to others, reproduced themselves in this multiplication ministry. Dr. Herschel Hobbes, a well-known Baptist theologian, once made the statement, the work of evangelism is never complete until the one evangelized becomes an evangelizer. Remember that Great Commission verse, one of our 52 series? Tyson talked about it last week from Matthew 28. We need to read that again. Therefore, go and do what? Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then do what? Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. Be sure of this, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. After a distinguished performing career, virtuoso violinist Jaska Heifetz accepted an appointment to teach music at UCLA. Asked what had prompted him to give up his performing career, Heifetz replied, Violin playing is a perishable art. It must be passed on as a personal skill. It must be taught. Otherwise, it is lost. Disciple building is not transferable by osmosis. It must be passed on. Disciples are to bear fruit, and that means making other disciples. Go and make disciples. Disciples.